Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes to the church, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Whenever I'm approached by a young man and woman who asks for me to officiate their wedding, my first step is to have them fill out a premarital questionnaire. You see, it's my obligation to explain God's perspective on marriage. And the questionnaire serves as a starting point. It helps me to know where they're at and what they think. The application is loaded with questions. Some are quite personal. It's the intention of the questionnaire to encourage the couple to identify their beliefs and to analyze their feelings and then be able to talk about it together. But the hardest question on the application by far, the hardest question is also the shortest question. It's just three words. What is love? And how would you answer that question? How do you define love? In a college class that I took, I think everybody took it, Psychology 101, I'll never forget the textbook definition of love. An agitated state of psychological arousal. How romantic. How warm. Imagine leaning in and whispering to your sweetheart, Honey, have I told you lately that you agitate my psyche? After that, she just might slap you. You're the one who'd be agitating her psyche. I mean, heartburn is an agitated state. Hemorrhoidal pain or a kidney stone, that's an agitated state. A barking dog next door is an agitated state. A screaming kid on an airplane is psychological arousal. Or the guy at the movie who won't stop talking. Or maybe a hurried motorist who won't get off your bumper. That's a psychological arousal. Surely the Psych 101 textbook is not the definitive word on love. Surely. There's got to be more to it than an agitated state of psychological arousal. Hopefully love is not just stirring up of my feelings. Or just a burning brain wave. No, real love has got to be more than just emoting. Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gets, gets us up to speed on love. He defines for us what it is. And then he defines for us what it's not. Paul lets us know what real love looks like. And then he warns us of love's counterfeit. Lust in all its many forms. Verse 1 begins, Therefore... Be imitators of God 
as dear children. Now you remember at the end of chapter 4, Paul told us to put on and to put off. Now that we're God's kids, we need to dress like it. We need to act like it. We need to dress our soul in a new identity. We need to act in accordance with this new life in Christ. Hey, put on this new you. For you've been blessed and chosen and adopted and redeemed and forgiven and accepted and sealed with the Holy Spirit. We should embrace this. We should enjoy this. We need to believe that it's true because it is. Never see yourself as you once did without Christ. Put on Christ. And then put off the bad habits and the false notions and the foul language and the destructive attitudes that carried over from your past and now undermine your new life in Christ. We need to put off and we need to put on. You're a new creation in Christ. You, my friend, are a child of God. And this is the big realization without which you'll flounder in your faith. You'll fail to walk in victory. For when I understand what Jesus has done for me, that's when I'll love him passionately. That's when he'll be my hero. That's when I'll follow him and I'll relish God as my father and Jesus as my master. My desire will be to imitate God as a dear child. When I was a kid, I would often sit in the bathroom and I'd watch my dad brush his teeth. Well, dad wore dentures. And so he'd pull out his plate and then he'd scrub his false teeth, you know, with his toothbrush. And mom says that she would walk in and often I would be sitting there in the bathroom brushing my imaginary dentures with my toothbrush. Then sticking it back in my mouth. Mimicking my dad. You see, this is what children are prone to do, aren't they? They love to mimic the adults in their life. Here's a few pictures to illustrate the point. <laughs> There's a little guy. How about another? There's a few more. Kids love to imitate their heroes. <laughs> and a picture is worth a thousand words. And when a kid acts like his dad, what happens to the dad? Oh, we poke out our chest. We lift up our chin. It makes a dad proud. Nothing endears a child to a dad more than when that kid mimics him. I'll never forget me and my three tots. We were coming around the house one afternoon. Kathy was on the deck cooking burgers. And she saw us. She saw me. I, I spit out into the grass. And that's when Zach, he spit. And that's when Nick, he spit. And then, oh no, she saw Natalie spit. <laughs> oh, she wasn't worried about the boys. But what in the world are you teaching our daughter? I half-heartedly promised to reform, but secretly I was so happy. <laughs> my sons, even my daughter, wanted to be like their dad. And you should know that this is how God feels when we mimic him. That it pleases him. Notice again verse 1. When we imitate God, he calls us dear children. Our desire to be like him excites God and endears us to him. But here's the question. How do we imitate God? I mean, imitating God, that's a big deal. 
It's not as easy as it sounds. I mean, God has some big shoes for us to fill. I can't mimic his wisdom. The Bible tells me that his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. and His ways are higher than my ways. I certainly can't mimic his power. All things are possible for God, whereas with me, I can do nothing without him. Nor can I mimic his sovereignty. I mean, the almighty God, he manipulates the jet stream. He created the Big Dipper. Half the time, I can't find my car keys. But there is one way that I can mimic my hero and bring God joy. Read with me again in verse 2. And walk in love. Hey, realize, love is the foremost feature of the Christian way of life. Love is what Christianity is all about. 1 John chapter 4 verse 16 tells us, God is love. Hey, I'm sure it pains God when he has to get angry. I know he doesn't like it when he has to judge. But when it comes to love, this is what comes naturally to God. Love is his heartbeat. Love is his joy. And to walk with God is to walk in love. You know 1 Corinthians 13. I'll sum it up for you. Without love, you ain't nothing. You're a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. Certainly God's love is deeper and broader and higher and wider than our love. But I've tasted God's love, haven't you? In fact, we are the object of God's love. Even more so, Romans 5 verse 5 tells us that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God has put his love in my heart and that means that I can love others with the same love that God has given to me. God has shown me grace, thus I can be gracious. God has extended mercy. Hey, now I can be merciful. And you see, this helps us with this definition of love that we're after. Again, verse 2 reads, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Here God defines love. Not with a dictionary entry. Not in a black and white kind of way. Not as a textbook would. God writes his definition in blood. You see, God shows all men for all times what true love is like by drawing a picture. And not even with paints. He uses two beams of a roughed out piece of wood, a little rope, some rusty nails, a cat of nine tails, and a crown of thorns. God points to a Roman cross and the sacrifice of his only son, Jesus. And he says, there it is. That's it. That is real love. And today the cross remains the standard, the plumb line against which real love is understood and measured. Jesus predicted this before his death in John 15 verse 13. There he told his disciples, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Question, how much does God love us? Answer, Christ held out his arms and said, that much. And in verse 2, Paul uses three words to describe Jesus' work on the cross and in doing so, help us grasp the meaning of true love. He uses the word given and offering 
and sacrifice. First, Paul writes that Christ has given himself. Hey, love is more than an agitated state of psychological arousal. It's a decision to give. It really has little to do with agitation or emotion or feeling. Love is a deliberate choice. It's a deliberate choice that I make to give of myself for another person's well-being. Realize lust and greed, they want to take, whereas love always wants to give. Love is selfless. Love thinks, what can I do for you? Whereas lust thinks, what can you do for me? It was Amy Carmichael who wrote, You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. I've heard it said that there are really three types of love. First is the I love you if kind of love. I love you only if you meet my conditions. It's a performance-based kind of love. And then there's an I love you because, because you're good looking or because you're rich or because you're popular or nice or funny. Oh, it's based on circumstances that, by the way, can change in a heartbeat. But there is a third type of love. I love you, period. It's love with no strings attached, no preconditions. And this is the love that Jesus exhibited on the cross. Romans 5 verse 8 puts it, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice that. Even while we were sinners, the cross was unconditional love. God didn't preface it with an if or with a because. He just put his love out there. When Jesus loved you, he expected nothing in return. He loved you because he really loves you. Well, the second word that Paul uses to describe real love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross is offering. And boy, this was a familiar term to temple Jews. You see, the Jews, they paid tithes, not just 10%, by the way. But the Old Testament tithe was upwards of 32%. The tithe was a person's duty. It was what they owed to God. But after the tithe was given, that's when a person could add an offering. This wasn't a duty. This was a person's delight. Nowhere was an offering mandated. It was given from the worshiper's heart because he wanted to give it, not because he had to give it. And this helps us define the cross Jesus went to the cross with a willing heart. That night before he was crucified, there in the garden, Jesus embraced the cross. He would carry that cross the next day, but he embraced it that night. He laid aside all of his hurt and his reservations, and he renewed his commitment to his mission. Rather than go to the cross begrudgingly, he carried it with you and me in mind. He loved us. And this is true love. Love is an offering, not an obligation. It's never, okay, I'll do it if I must. No, it wants to be involved. It goes the second mile. It turns the other cheek. Real love goes out of its way to offer its help. You see, love is all about giving and offering. And then real love is also a sacrifice. This is the third word Paul uses. And a sacrifice costs. It requires a price. You see, a sacrifice is more than a tip or a courtesy or even a favor. No, it involves not just what's convenient. A sacrifice is always costly. 
Once there was a little girl, she said to her boyfriend, she says, do you love me? He replied, yes, my love. She asked again, would you die for me? He answered, uh, uh, mine is an undying devotion. <laughs> well, an undying devotion is not real love. You see, to love another person is to lay down my life for that person. Not necessarily in a single act of courage. Sometimes we think of loving the Lord. It's going out in a blaze of glory. Say, yes, I'll die for you, Lord. Being taken out by the machine guns. But no, real love is willing to lay down my life and my rights and my conveniences and my comforts and my pleasures in a thousand daily ways. Love is willing to slice up my life in a half a million sacrifices over half a million hours. You see, are you willing to die a little at a time? Well, put it all together, and rather than a psychological arousal or an agitation or a flittering of the butterflies, real love is a commitment. It's a promise kept. You see, love gets tough when life gets rough. Just look at the cross. And this kind of love, Paul says, is a sweet aroma to God. You know, when an animal sacrifice was placed on the altar, often a drink offering was poured out over the carcass. It was like a sacred steak sauce. The liquid spices turned the burning meat into a pleasant, scented fragrance. I guess in the Old Testament, barbecue was God's favorite smell. Mine too, but no longer. For now, love is what thrills and tickles God's nostrils. Love is like a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Paul says, walk in love. And yet there's a lot going on and a lot coming up from among Christians today that has the opposite effect. Rather than thrill God's nostrils, rather than be a sweet savor, there's a lot among Christians today that's a stench in his nostrils. Selfishness and lust masquerading as love is polluting the air rather than pleasing the Lord. And this is what I need to ask us this morning. What kind of stinkers are we? Are we imitating God and walking in love? Or are we imitating the world and walking in lust? Well, this is what Paul asks us in verse 3. He helps, he's helped us understand what love is. But now he's going to define what love is not. He's going to uncover love's counterfeit lust. He writes this. But fornication... In all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. In this verse, just as he does with love, Paul uses three broad terms, three loaded terms to define lust. Fornication is the Greek word pornea, from which we get our word pornography. In the first century, it was sort of a catch-all term for all kinds of illicit sexual activity uncleanness. It means impurity. It's the same kind of general prohibition. It really voids any sex outside of marriage. And then covetousness or greedy. In this context, it's the greed. It's the desire to want to use someone else's body for your own gratification. You see, these terms were all-encompassing terms. They were sort of a catch-all term. Included in these prohibitions would be prohibitions against premarital sex and adultery and homosexuality 
and spouse swapping and prostitution and incest and strip clubs and hookups and pornography and cyber sex and phone sex and sexting and friends with benefits, etc., etc., etc. In other words, anything that feeds a person's sexual appetites apart from marriage, according to Paul, isn't fitting for a Christian. It shouldn't even be named among you. But Pastor Sandy, are you serious? Man, we're living in the 21st century. Haven't you heard anything goes? What could be wrong with two consenting adults going to bed together? Well, can I remind you of something? Do you realize who created sex in the first place? Don't forget, it was God's idea. Hugh Hefner didn't create sex. Dr. Ruth didn't create sex. Sex was God's idea. He created it. God designed it for bonding and for pleasure. And this means that if God chooses, he can restrict the use of sex. That's well within his right to do so. And what's more, if he does, it's certainly because he has a good reason. Ben Franklin once said, Sin is not hurtful because it's forbidden. It is forbidden because it's hurtful. The boundaries that God put around sex aren't intended to spoil our fun. They're drawn for our protection. You know, what our culture fails to appreciate is that sex is more than an animalistic instinct. It's more than just a biological function. Human sexuality carries spiritual connotations. Sex creates emotional bonds. It glues two people together in a spiritual way. An unexpected oneness occurs. Listen to the words of a woman named Ingrid. She writes, There were a number of things I hadn't counted on. Things which none of my friends who wanted to be free had counted on. When love didn't turn out as planned, there was a peculiar pain that I refused to acknowledge. A pain of separation that had not been part of the design. I didn't count on the power of sex. I didn't realize that sex made a difference. That it transformed everything for me. And for most women, making love with a man several times created unpredictable bonds. I didn't realize physical intimacy had unknown properties. That it created deepening needs and bursts of possessiveness and jealousy. I didn't realize that love could reverse itself, be withdrawn, and that the consequences of such withdrawal could be so powerful as to crush one's own potential for feeling. I didn't realize that there, were actu- that there actually was such a thing as falling apart over the loss of love. Very revealing. You need to realize God created sex for marriage. He designed it as a superglue. What it glues is supposed to stay. And once it's glued, you don't pull it apart and it breaks away easily. It's not like you pull along the dotted lines. No. Once it's been super glued, when you pull it apart, it rips. And it tears in places that were never meant to be torn. It does serious damage. This is why sex was meant for a man and a woman in a lifelong relationship. Otherwise, it erodes a person's self-worth. Listen to another woman named Nancy. She says, when I had sex, I was so locked up emotionally, not being personally involved in all, that I couldn't really enjoy it. 
Maybe there'd be some tenderness afterward, but usually I was so out of it, I didn't know or cared if there was. Maybe I was afraid to care. Sometimes I'd think I was in love, but then I'd never hear from him again. They were just a piece of meat, I'd tell myself. I'd laugh it off. But inside I knew that I was the piece of meat. And I was dying. I loved life, but I hated myself. I loved men, but never any particular one because I couldn't trust them. I loved sex, but I never enjoyed it. That is, I was never really fulfilled. I was hungry, but never filled. I never understood any of it, and I couldn't stop. The weekend came, and I was back on the roller coaster. Hey, here is the non-politically correct truth. If you're a Christian, your body no longer belongs to you. It's been bought with a price. Your body belongs to Jesus. And if you give your body to someone without a promise from them and a blessing from God, it not only grieves God's heart, it cheapens and degrades you in your own eyes. You do get reduced to a piece of meat. You see, our culture today is so confused about sex and love. People believe that they're one and the same. Folks even refer to sex as making love. But sex may have nothing to do with love. Two stray dogs meet in an alley and they like each other enough to have sex. But that's not love. And just because you love a person doesn't mean you should have sex with them. Love respects and looks out for the other person's highest good. It never dishonors or dirties or defiles the person it loves. It insists on God's best. Let me say, just because modern society scoffs at what it calls the Bible's puritanical and old-fashioned and outdated views of sex, let me ask, how is society doing these days? I mean, what kind of sexual landscape has been produced by our liberated attitudes? Do you think folks are more fulfilled today? Do you think there's less hurt in broken lives? Do you see an upswing in self-esteem and self-worth? Or has the sexual revolution produced a whole population of depressed and deflated people? As well as an explosion of STDs and deviant behavior and a degrading of women and unwanted pregnancies and an epidemic number of single parents struggling to get by alone. You see, here's the Bible's ethos on sex. Walk in love, not lust. And are you really saying we'd be worse off if we did? Understand, real love is grounded in faith. I'll obey God and I'll trust Him to take care of me and my needs. Single Christians today, they act desperate. They think that if they don't advertise and prove their prowess and try on a few people, Life and love will pass them by. Well, where's your faith? Where's your trust in God? When Elizabeth Elliot was a single Christian, she decided to honor God's, the Bible's standard for sex and trust God with her personal needs for family and for love. She wrote later, I took for granted that there must be a few men left who had the strength to swim against the tide. I assumed that those men would also be looking for women of principle. I did not want to be among the marked down goods on the bargain table, cheap because they had been pawed over. 
Crowds collect there. It's only the few who will pay full price. And God blessed Elizabeth with a godly husband. And trust me, God will bless you if you seek to do things God's way. Understand, the Christian view of sexual intimacy is the most exalted of any religion or culture in the world. Christianity's sexual ethos sets a high standard. And here's the reason. A Christian is to walk in love. And we understand that love is giving and offering and sacrificing. Oh, the world walks in lust, but the Christian walks in love. Listen to verse 3 in the New International Version. I think it says it well. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Once Alexander the Great was reviewing his troops after a battle and he came across a man who'd been disciplined for cowardice. He asked the man his name. The soldier answered, Alexander. Alexander the Great replied, what did you say? The soldier said, Alexander, sir. Well, the general went into a rage. He and a coward had the same name. And that's when Alexander the Great ordered, Soldier, either change your ways or change your name. And if you're living in sexual sin while still calling yourself a Christian, I would issue the same challenge to you. Either change your name or change your ways. Imitating God and walking in love will steer clear of impure deeds. But it will also avoid impure dialogue. Paul writes in verse 4 that neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. See certain forms of humor, certain kinds of jokes are not appropriate for the child of God. Filthiness and foolish talking aren't hard to figure out. But coarse jesting is an interesting phrase. This Greek word translated jesting, it means to turn. This is turning a conversation in an evil direction. Here's a person who, who makes sexually suggestive remarks, who makes leading innuendos, who takes your innocent comment and then twists it in a salacious way. You've heard this done. You see, a coarse jester has a quick wit tied to a promiscuous heart. You can tell a lot about a person by what makes them laugh. Hey, your pastor of all people enjoys a good joke. Matter of fact, I enjoy a bad joke or really enjoy a corny joke. But I draw the line at dirty jokes. I mean, do you chuckle when you hear off-color humor? Tomorrow, when you hear it, and you will, why don't you excuse yourself? Why don't you find some work to do and walk away? You don't have to be self-righteous about it. Walk in love, even to the guy who's telling the joke. Just don't indulge yourself in evil. For as a child of God, we were born into love, not lust. Never forget, we're in a spiritual battle. It's a fight with temptation. And our strategy should be to keep the war as far away from the home front as possible. You know, it's bad enough if our enemy is in North Korea. Or if he's in the mountains of Afghanistan. But you certainly don't want the combatants parked off the Carolina coast. 
You want to keep the fighting as far as possible from what's most vital to you. And the same is true spiritually. You see, sin is fought on multiple fronts. Before sin grows into a destructive habit, it was a single deed that I tried. Before that deed, it was an attitude that I developed. Before it was an attitude, it was a desire that I nurtured. Before that desire started, it was a thought that I entertained. And that thought was planted by a picture that I saw. And I saw that picture in a place that I went. And I visited that place with a friend that I chose. And you see, here's the battle strategy. Make good choices before the sin snowballs. Choose the right friends. Avoid the wrong places. Do the battle in the theater of your mind. Don't wait until your sin grows momentum and lodges in your heart and then threatens your marriage and wrecks your home and siphons off your riches and ruins your health. Here's another way to put it. Keep your hands out of the cookie jar. The surest way to resist a forbidden cookie is to never put your hand near the cookie jar. And yet here's what Christians do. We see the cookies. We remember we used to like cookies. We think we might enjoy a cookie again. And so we unscrew the lid and we stick our hand in the cookie jar. And then we pray, God, deliver me from cookies. Well, I suppose 99% of the time, I've never done exact research on this, but I suppose that 99.9% of the time, if your hand goes into the cookie jar, it'll probably come out with a cookie. This is why if you're serious about overcoming sin and walking in love, you'll keep your hand as far as possible from the cookie jar. Be a stranger to danger. And this is why verse 4 is so important. How we walk and what makes us think. What makes us laugh and how we talk. Even if I have no thoughts of doing the deed. Do you realize that if Satan gets me talking about it and joking about it and laughing about it. Then he's cutting down my distance from it. He's actually eliminating my buffer. You know how this works. You and your spouse have never mentioned that you'd like a new car. But once you verbalize it, man, that desire, it picks up steam. All of a sudden, it takes a giant leap toward reality just by talking about it. Now that's all you want to talk about is what model and what color and what extras. And this is what happens when we joke and when we laugh about evil. When we entertain ourselves with it, without knowing it, we're inching closer to the edge. We're putting ourselves on the verge. Oh, you've never thought of cheating on your husband, but you've watched it done on television. And you've empathized with its participants. And slowly, it's broken down your sensibilities. Oh, it amazes me. The companies that spend $4 million for a 30-second ad on the Super Bowl, they'll turn around and they'll deny that violent and sensual programming has any effect on a viewer's behavior. Well, why do they spend the money on the ad? What entertains us shapes us. It does. Don't be deceived. Proverbs 23 verse 7 tells us, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. We are influenced by stuff we consume. And over time, we get sucked in. We end up imitating the world 
rather than imitating God. And this is more dangerous than we think. For Paul writes in verse 5, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Here Paul mentions three people that no matter what these people say, they are not headed to heaven. They claim to be Christians, but over time, neither of the three are capable of restraint. It's obvious that they lack the conviction and the power and the life of God's Spirit inside them. Their lives are completely out of control. For the fornicator, the issue is sex. For the unclean person, it's deviant thoughts. For the covetous man, it's money. And often these three people are one and the same. It's all about him, his glands, and his perspective, and his wallet. This is a person void of any moral principles. And it's not just a moral problem. It's a spiritual one as well. For notice how Paul refers to this person. He calls him an idolater. You know, many of today's Americans would never bow before a statue or a trinket. But they worship sex or things or money or even personal autonomy. When you value something supremely at all costs, it does become an idol. When it, whatever it is, becomes more valuable to you than your wife and your family and your church and your integrity and your faith and your God and even heaven and hell, then it has replaced the true God as your new God. Reminds me of the young businessman who flipped his car over guardrail, rolled it down a steep embankment. The twisted metal actually severed off his arm. When the hero units reached him, the guy kept whining, Oh, my Lamborghini. Oh, my Lamborghini. The attending paramedics, they were appalled that this man was so materialistic that all he could think about was his car. One of the EMTs, he kind of lost patience, and he told him, he said, Buddy, you got a lot more to worry about than your silly car. Your arm was chopped off. The man suddenly gets this panic look on his face, and he starts crying, Oh, my Rolex. Oh, my Rolex. Here's a person that has made wealth his idol. Years ago, there was a popular rap song with the lyrics, Boys want sex and girls want money. And that's true of millions of people in our culture. Getting her to bed and getting us ahead is what life is all about. Hey, such a person is imitating their God. But their God is not the Christian God. For Christ is about love, not lust. And thus the fornicator and the unclean person and the covetous or the greedy is an idolater, not a Christian. Again, verse 6 tells us, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Hey, there are people who deceive and have been deceived by empty words. My former church that I attended, we counted, quote, professions of faith. They knew exactly how many folks had mouthed an allegiance to Jesus. But you see, it's not a profession that saves us. It's a possession. Is your faith more than words? It needs to be. 
See, here's the question I know some of you are asking. Pastor Sandy, are you saying that a Christian will never struggle with sexual sin or uncleanness or greediness? If so, man, I'm in real trouble. Well, let me be clear. That is not what I'm saying. Christians aren't perfect. And we can be lured into sin. We are vulnerable to temptation. The operative word here, though, is struggle. Are you struggling? I mean, a Christian will struggle with these sins. In fact, that's one of the evidences that proves they're a Christian. There's a struggle. There's something inside them that's pushing them to fight the temptation and to pursue victory. They don't just capitulate and cave in. See, it's the person who doesn't care at all about what they do and who they hurt. The person who has no desire to walk in love. This is the person who has no inheritance in the kingdom. As I've often said, real faith leaves tracks. There'll be a marked evidence of how, there'll be a marked evidence of your faith in how you live your life. See, if a bomb went off in this room, later I'd be able to prove it. I'd be able to walk you back in here and show you the crater that it left behind. And in the same way, when grace explodes in a person's heart, it changes the terrain. And it carves out a new character. There's evidence of its impact. I like the statement, Christians aren't sinless, but as they grow, they will sin less and less and less. Verse 7 wraps up Paul's talk on our walk in love. He writes, therefore, do not be partakers with them. He comes back to his original idea. Be imitators of God, not imitators of the wickedness in this world. You see, as children of God, we need to learn to love. Jesus has loved us, and we're called to love others. Real love is more than an agitated state of psychological arousal. It gives, and it offers, and it sacrifices. And we need to be people who do the same. We need to walk in love. And as we do, we need to avoid love's counterfeit. Those 50 shades of gray that we refer to as lust. We need to keep the war far away from the home front as possible. We need to keep our hand out of the cookie jar. We need to make sure that our faith is real and that we walk in love. 